Do you come to Milwaukee often? You guys have a bubbler in here or no? No, I wasn't drinking. I only had beer. Welcome to Milwaukee! I already ate my veggies today. I had a Bloody Mary for breakfast. Comes with a built-in brat holder. Welcome to Miltaki. Can I say that that's why I didn't want to retire is because I felt like I could be drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. Why? Who cares? Why not? And I want to have a little bit of structure. I want to have some accountability because otherwise I think I could go into it really easily. All right. Well, I'm going to get this started. So, uh, hey, how you doing? Welcome to Miltaki. I'm your host, Bruce City Benjamin. These, uh, this is going to be a fun one. First, we got, uh, this is a Holt episode. This is the first of what I'm hoping is many, many Holt episodes. We have the dynamic duo. The uh, I do a lot of alliterations on my on my openings. The uh, Alliterations. The dutiful. The, what, is, what are some good D words? Because you're both D. We got David and Deb here. Also, AKA known as my mother and father. So this is a very exciting family episode. The dutiful, the... Dynamic. Dynamic. Uh, you got any words that you've been called over the years? Dirty. Dirty L. Your name literally, what, your nickname at, was dirt. for your career was Dirt. Uh, so On the fire department. Lieutenant Dirt. Dandy. Dandy, yes. The Dandy Deborah. He is not, no. He is the, un, he is the antithesis of Dandy. Ooh, Dave, those are fighting <laughs> words. She just called you the opposite of Dandy. All right, I'm going to take her out back. And- <laughs> okay. I think this this might end a 30-something year marriage for this podcast. 40, right. well, 39 years. 39, 39, almost 40 years, yeah. Okay, Actually, so. This year it's 40. Yeah, it's, yeah. 39. 39? Right. 1982. Or 19, right. 1982 is when we were married, so you do the math. And there's like six good ones, right? No, I'm just uh, kidding. I'm, I'm not just sure. Kidding. I think that's on the high side. <laughs> well, we got some fun topics today. We have... Uh, these are going to be a little weird, but we have generational differences. That one's pretty straightforward. We are going to debate the uh, who's better, millennials or boomers. I'm, I'm on the side of millennials, obviously. I will be defending us, and uh, these boomers here are going to tell me why I suck, and I'm going to tell them why they do. For the other two topics, we have two strange ones. This is an interest of both of theirs, and I'm going to get to the origin of why this is their interest, and I want to hear the other and so I've always wanted to know why this is so important to them. But my mother loves British TV, like BBC shows and all these. Uh, what are you? What's the murder ones you like? Murder mysteries and all that. What's yeah. What's uh, the name of the show? Midsummer, that you like? Midsummer Murder and uh, uh, the Crown and well, well, the Crown's not a murder. That's, that's okay. But British, she loves Acorn and BBC and all this stuff. So we're going to talk about that, and I want to see if Dave is starting to get into British TV or what he's thought about loving this royalty-loving wife for all these years. And the other topic, the uh, the on the flip side, Dave has been a lifelong World War II aficionado and obsessive uh, history nerd, which has uh, gotten me into history as well. And this is my first history topic for this podcast, which I'm excited about because I'm definitely going to be doing more of these. So we are going to talk about World War II a little bit, but also more so try to figure out why does it appeal to Dave so much? And also kind of your entire generation, because Dave, every boomer I know is obsessed with World War II. So we're going to talk that's about because our dads were in it. That I think that's the biggest reason why, and it is the most. I mean, it's an incredibly fascinating topic, and there's a lot of that stuff to talk exactly about. I know it really is that. It really is, and um, my obsession with the Eastern Front, which is yes, specifically we are going to touch on the Eastern Front today, which, which uh, nobody knows about. It is insane that it's not talked about now. 
a part of the thing I wanted to talk about was American uh, education in this country about World War II. That's a big part of where... Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad we're on the same page. So we're going to start off, though, with generational differences because fuck these boomers. No. I want to hear... Yeah, but you call me an old millennial. I Well, this is why it's going to be very fun because, Mom, while technically the age number you have, you fall into the boomer camp. Of course I do. I don't think your soul is a boomer. I think well, you are I, a, I think you're so, Before we go, define millennial. Um, well, there actually, there is years, but I don't know them off the top of my head. I should look this up real quick. Millennial criteria. Let's, let's see. So a millennial is between 1981 and 1996. So that is currently ages 23 to 38, which to me seems like way too big. Well, and Adam is 37. So, so me and Adam are technically both or millennials. Well, you are, but he's at really at the high end. And... Baby boomers are between 46 and 64, so ages 54 to 72. So, okay. 46 and 72. So, why are to they 64. So, why are they called millennials, by the way? You know, I don't. Is that, well, I assume because we're getting close to, to the 2000s and it just was a good branding name because we're starting a new millennia. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know this. I'm just, I'm, I, I'm, I'm bullshitting. I, mean, this. I don't no, know. I, I, they have, you know, who knows? But, yeah, I think that the millennial was a big part of it. Yeah. So I'm going to start this off with a couple notes that I thought, and I want to see where you guys take them. I don't, I, I get over, I, I hate the idea that one generation is better than the other because look, I'm going to be defending millennials. Every generation. Has every generation sucks. Every, every generation is great. Well, no, good every bad. generation when you get it's it's more about your age than it is generational. There are pros and cons to every generation. They're just different. They're, no, it's not it's better or worse. It's different through life stages. That's exactly. Kind of, yeah. But there are differences. There are notable differences. Always because of what what's the technology during when you're growing up? What's the, of course it's that's what changes generations. It's it's what's happening while you're growing up. I it's literally. But it, but it, it's a, it's a cocktail of many things. It's it's what wars were going on when yeah. you were what your generation was alive. What was popular? What was the trends? What was in our gen? It's going to be immigration for your well for your I think my, I think my generation is going to be defined by immigration but all, uh, primarily due to climate change I mean okay. I, I think our my generation is collectively afraid of the future which is in a different way than boomers were because boomers were too but it was more like cold war afraid like we're gonna get nuked my generation is more like we're afraid that we're gonna eat each other because there will be no more food yeah. that's a gigantic difference in fear it's the same fear. It's like a survival thing, but it's a completely different thing. See, thing. and I just don't remember ever feeling, and I think it's because of the way I grew up and everything. But for me, everything was positive. It's like, get out of Wernicke. Oh, my God. I never was thinking about all the, the to me, everything was positive. Go well, you down also down. probably weren't worried about Wernicke getting fucking newt. <laughs> I, I was just, I was just looking at a future of getting out of one key in the back mirror. And for me, everything was positive going forward. So I wasn't, af I wasn't afraid, not culturally. I've well, never I would say that's kind of a millennial trait, which is why I keep saying you're a millennial. Oh, so. I think I am. I am not a boomer. I am. That is a good, I, I don't have boomer music taste. I, I am not a boomer. And that, so that, that'll lead me. I, right my, to my soul is in the wrong body. That's the problem. 
my soul is in the wrong body. It's like when, you know, you hear it's uh, <laughs> I, I could be a ghost. I could be a ghost that inhabited this body and I don't maybe belong that, here. Maybe I am a millennial. Well, I want to run down a couple things that I, I, I see between the two. And you tell me what you agree with, what you disagree with. <laughs> the biggest one is I think millennials are more of a macro generation. And I think boomers are more of a micro generation. And me and Devin, my boss, has talked about this a lot. And what I mean by this is I think, and there's pros to cons of both. And I'm not saying uh, there is literally really bad things about being a macro and really bad things about being a micro. What I think millennials do is look at the global view all of the time and this whole like we are one we are united we are everyone and all that stuff which is mostly good it's a good outlook to have but sometimes when you're looking at the end game you're forgetting about the present now and the steps how you have to get there and all that stuff i get what you're saying i get what you're uh, saying the micro for boomers i think are often they're more about just like just do it just get ahead they're detail it's about oriented ourselves. it's detail oriented which is important it's millennials suck at details but we're good at looking at the end game the big picture boomers i think are better at the doing just doing don't ask questions just do it just get it done pay attention to the details get it done work hard or whatever there's pros and cons to both, but to me, and the starting point, that's where I want to start because me and Devin both agree that I think that is one of the biggest differences between the two generations. Interesting. So part of my feelings on this are I'm one who's incredibly disappointed in boomers. I think that boomers have done more to screw up this. I agree. And I started with such it's optimism. Selfishness. It's such selfishness. I started with such optimism when I think back to when I was in college in the late 60s, early 70s. We had the protests. And, the, and you know, there were a lot of uh, movements that started, you know, environmental and, you know, all this stuff. Similar to today. And how... So oh, I, I guarantee you all these people that are are on the, the, the woke warriors and so many of these people are going to grow up to be disappointing and they're going to so flip how, exactly like the boomers. So, so how many of those uh, things kind of went to shit? And I think a lot of it <laughs> ha has to do to with, with my generation was actually way more greedy. We <laughs> didn't greedy. consider ourselves to be greedy, but we actually ended up being quite greedy. So let me ask this, though. Do you think your generation was more or less greedy than any other generations? Or was it because of we had the growth in America post-World yeah, the, the, the post War II we thing? You, your generation was no given so was. much money and opportunity ever, that I, ever. I can see no becoming accidentally greedy us. on accident almost. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Our, my generation can't be greedy because, like... You're in debt coming out of school for $100,000. No, like it's so we, much. We so, were, so, even so, people like me that didn't grow up with money, we had things better than the generation prior. Because well, you didn't, there wasn't the, the, the it, was we hadn't gotten to the boom. late stage, stage capitalism where boom. there's like predatory loans and no, high interest there rates was and all this. Boom after of course, the war, yeah. And that was so, it. So, what I find it interesting, like uh, Paul Krugman's article today yeah. about the interstate highway. That in the fifties, what the Democrats and Republicans did together, you know, in fact, it was a, a, a voice vote in the Senate. There was one dissent about building the interstate highway, and how that kind of stuff isn't possible anymore. You know, I mean, there was an agreement, and come my generation, well, yeah, come my generation. You know, by the 60s, a lot of this shit had fallen apart. And I think it's just 
you know, gotten worse. So let me ask you this though. Do you think my generation would have handled those circumstances any better? Because I don't. I, no, I personally no, do. Well, I mean, no. so much of it, I think, is information is changing. But you know what? You can't even ask that question. It is an imp- it's an impossible. That's an impossible. Because the, the, the situations determine who you your generation is, not vice versa. And you're created by our generation. Exactly. And exactly. You can't, I mean, and generations want to, they, they fight back against whatever the generation gener- before it was. Every generation is like that. And I think it's interesting to talk about generational differences and all that kind of stuff. But the, the bottom line is, as you guys grow, as the millennials grow, well, look at Adam. I mean, he's he's got two. Adam is gonna, my brother, by the way. And he's going to have a third child on the way. And once you have children, once you get into the whole thing about school systems and where, and your kid is in T-ball and gymnastics and all this other stuff, your world changes from this. You're caring about the climate and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden you're not sleeping and your kids aren't eating and they're not doing everything. And it changes your whole perspective. And that's, it's why I actually believe more in life stages than I do in, in generational stuff. I mean, there are, di- there are different hot buttons in every generation, but I think there's more consistency in as you go through life stages. I would agree with that. Then I think there is in worrying about, uh, we had Vietnam, you guys had yeah. climate. I, I, I just think every generation, and if we survive, because at this point, it's not so much, okay, you grew up in the shadow of World War One. You grew up in the shadow of World War Two. We grew up in Vietnam. Now it's a matter of, are you even going to grow up in anything? I mean, that's kind of where we're at. And that's a whole different fear than well, anything also, we ever grew up with. It's, also, it's well, also a different okay, type but, of identity as well, because yes, it, your generation was so... This is, a, this is like the apocalypse. No, but Debbie, you also have to... to uh, Counter that with it's million years in the future. Do you remember <laughs> hiding under desks? Yeah, I did. Because we For had nuclear, nuclear bomb, nuclear affairs. Yeah. So, do you know what my generation? And we had the the, the bomb shelter. No, do you know what? Do you know, do you know what my my generation's uh, Cold War? Where you guys were hiding under desks to protect yourselves when with nukes? Which again, looking back on, is hilarious. Yeah. Well, you really. You know what our generation's is? School shooting drills. Oh yeah, you yeah, know okay. what? I never even it's it's it's, it's different, obviously, but it's never, it, that's our generation. Oh, version. and that's oh, that's really and you know what's so horrible about that? We've done it. It's our country has done it. We've allowed this to happen. This isn't a fear from aliens. This isn't a fear from another country. This is a this is us not having good gun laws. Literally, we are creating fear in a whole generation because. We have a fucking small population that think the Second Amendment means that you can have guns at any cost. It doesn't matter. That's that's their interpretation. And this is another example of the majority being fucking held hostage by the minority. And I hate it. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I do. Wayne LaPierre should be (laughs) run out of town, tarred and feathered on a... He and Grover Norquist have ruined this country. And I want to get that into this podcast because those two are absolutely the worst human beings. They, they are, they created Donald Trump. They, they've created all of this shit. Those two people. 
It's like when they we did, should when be I did, tarred and feathered. When I did the podcast and, about when I did oh the podcast God. about uh, the people on planet Earth that we hate most currently, <laughs> I got a couple people being like, "Well, I can't believe you did pick Donald Trump," and I'm like, "Believe me, I hate Donald Trump." But there are so many people that I blame for Donald the Trump people. that I actually don't even really blame Donald Trump. He's a child. He's always been a child. He just did Donald Trump stuff, and we elected him. Like it's on us. It's, it's Wayne Lapierre yeah, and Grover Norquist. <laughs> I mean, those two are, and Steve Bannon gets, it's these there's, people behind the scenes that are dirty operators. They just are. You know, Roger Stone is another one. It, there's there's the people that never want to be in front of the audience. They're the ones behind. Those are the truly smart people, by the way. They are. Yeah, They're yeah. the ones that are making puppets of Donald Trump. I, I have, I have I long mean, had this theory that there is a handful of people who are probably realistically some of the most popular or powerful people on the planet. And the people, those people, you don't even we know. probably don't even know who they exactly. are. Exactly. Yeah. Because they know that power lies in being anonymous. Well, and it doesn't so mean that there anonymous. aren't people that know who these people are. I'm not saying some weird, like, Illuminati no, no, people. No. But I'm saying it's like they're a boring person that nobody pays attention Everybody to. Everybody thinks that being in the limelight is the thing. Being anonymous is the biggest gift it's, of it's anything. It's just different types of power. Uh, well, So you realize how many people are going to Steve Bannon's uh, uh, site right now? Politicians. What? What what site is this now? Well, what a, whatever his podcast it's is or whatever. Because Trump has lost his voice, so Steve Bannon is oh, like the godsend he's filled in. So Steve and, and, Bannon and, and, is his biggest. The, that the, guy the is. I wouldn't trust him as far as you have to doubt the election. Oh, I mean that's what that literally is the basically the GOP platform. At it's this the point. only thing. It is literally okay. You got to get us back on track. Get no, chances are encouraged. It's all right. We're actually we're getting close talking. to the 20-minute mark. So uh, we're going to wrap up the generational differences with uh, – how should we end this one? I, I can't tell you how disappointed I am in my that. generation. I think we did it fair. Uh, this is what the podcast is. This is what I, I don't understand. There's so many I, good generational things that I, I – expect. We can have another conversation about this sometime. I expected way more out, out of my generation. I'm really disappointed I when uh, – what's the – uh, love it and leave it. The love it when he talks about boomers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand what he's saying. To, to be fair, though, and I don't want to defend boomers too much because I do believe your generation fucked up a lot of things. But I think generation is going to do the same. Thing. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> generations A are not monolithic. There's a lot I of good. You're going to do the same thing. Absolutely. And you know what? Who's who's and, ahead of you? Generation X. They're greedy as hell. Every generation is going to have their own. Flaws. I mean, no, they're the ones that are the CEOs now. The fifty-year-olds. They're Generation X. And so much of as, my generation They're greedy as hell. Well, of course, of course. I mean, actually, actually, the boomers had some ideals. Then the next generation, the 50-year-olds the, the to the 60-year-olds right the, now, the, are actually incredibly corporate. The boomers, quite, the boomers though, just have this, uh, what's that old phrase, like, you have to die a hero before you turn into the villain type thing? I feel like the boomers are kind of that, they were in power 20 years too long. You know what I mean? Kind of. They became the villain because they, they couldn't give up power. And they actually, there was some good shit that happened throughout the 70s and 80s. You know what's now. happening with a lot of the boomers? Not a lot of good shit, by the way, because the 70s, 80s. But you know bad. what I think is happening? And it's kind of funny. It's it's almost a circle back to pot. But the reality is, I think a lot of boomers, as they're now past work age and all this other stuff, and now they're getting into wellness, into yoga, and all this other stuff, I think boomers are trying to find what gave them meaning, hope and meaning in their earlier lives. Well, and I think they're trying to find that. And honestly, well, look at us with you and, and our relationship with you, with Adam, whatever. 
you know, if there's anything that really is positive out of this, and there's pros and cons, but I really do think it's a good thing to have relationships between children, kids, and their parents much more open, like it is now. And it's not like every family is perfect, but when you look at past generations and people, how how what they did because they were afraid to tell their parents and they were repressed for their entire lives. I mean, you know, we got a lot of shit going on and everybody's yelling at everybody and all this other stuff, but you know what? Maybe that's better. Maybe it's better that all this crap is coming out and everybody's yelling at everyone and it's not hidden anymore and it's not all that. Maybe it's better to kind of get all this venom out and then try to figure out how to, you know, move from there because there is all this undercurrent stuff. And when you look at, I mean, our relationship, the boomers' relationships with their kids, it's complicated because it's hard to go from parents to friends because there's always this other stuff in there. And honestly, I think as a parent, you always should remember that because I don't think you should ever, you you always have to recognize that you're that you're you're still the parent, you know, and there there's some of this stuff. But I think people talking things out is a much better route than the way it used to be. I, I actually I feel positive about culture. I think the fact that, you know, we worry about democracy and all this other stuff, but the reality is that people we still live in a great country. We still live. I mean, Trump got kicked out. You know, he, he he's trying to get back in, but he got fucking kicked out. It is important to under, to at least acknowledge the victories we have. I agree, and I think all we do is now is just weeping and hand wringing and whatever. Well, this, uh, and this, I this, wish this, we would we, think well, bigger. I actually, I, I, I will, I, I will actually, I, I do. This is my theory on boomers in a nutshell: is your generation was a very weird planets aligned thing where you had a gigantic influx of money. It's a bunch of yeah, a it's, lot of stuff. They're raised by a generation. While I think Grandma's generation is the greatest generation, I think that that generation went through trauma that we. I mean, they're the ones that fought in World War II. So and it's they a bunch raised of, us. It's a bunch of people who had a lot of PTSD, but it's a very damaged generation into machos, and, and they, they never dealt with us. us too. They did, but then you guys had this per like great thirty year window where uh, you could go to school. You know, you could go to and really reasonably. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you I didn't went, need a ton of money to get go to college. You didn't need a ton of money. To, there were jobs plentiful, all this stuff. But the problem was, if you were white, if this is what I was leading white. to. My That's point being, right. the That's media, right. because the media focused on white people, because it was run for and by white people. So oh, the middle class of America, which is predominantly true. white people, yes. viewed everybody as feeling good in this time because all the news covered was how good everything was for a lot of people thought was everybody. They didn't talk about, I don't know, two thirds of the country or whatever. So your generation, I think has this like romantic of idea of like, yeah, God, that was it's, such a great 30. Romance is a good Because word. the media it's only, the only, they only talked about their, the, you know, that so, group. So they're missing how word. it wasn't great for everybody else. And now everybody, this generation looks back and they go, 
why can't it be like it was? And it's like, first off, it's very misleading the way you're representing your life was probably good because there's a lot of, there's a third of this country that had all the advantages in the and world. And we grew up in Wisconsin. And not only that, white and this is my theory on what you were talking about trying to find meaning again. I think a lot of people like Dave, Dave was at Woodstock and he was a hippie for a while and all that stuff. I think a lot of people, because the hippie generation, a lot of it was lies and bullshit and all that stuff. I, I believe in a lot of like love theories and all that stuff. That's great. But a lot of people got hurt during the hippie they, they got hurt. It was pain. They tried drugs and drugs, free loves yeah. and they got hurt. And so, they doubled down on being conservative afterwards because they dabbled in liberalism and hippieism. And, and they were dismayed by it and they go, fuck this. You I, know, you're that is my theory about you why the are right. I, you know, it hasn't been given to me that succinctly, but I think you're right. When you when you look and Trump supporters are perfect microcosm of that because they're not Democrats. They're not Republicans. What they are is they wanted someone who would tell them that they're okay. You know where some of the most most extreme Christians are? It ain't down South. It's out in California. It's people that were ex hippies who were diehard hippies got dismayed and then found Jesus. And now they hate liberals because they were like, well, I tried that and it ruined my life because I did drugs or something like that. And a lot of people did it did ruin their life. And like they associated I, I actually think you're absolutely you are that's absolutely right. You know, I think your theory is that's better. one of the things about I think Trump. it happened to you for a while. Well, I can say that. But anyway, you went from Woodstock liberal to by the time you got back to Madison and being a fire department and stuff, you're listening to Rush Limbaugh. There was a pendulum swing. Well, no, Rush I did Limbaugh, listen to Rush Limbaugh. But on I the other started hand, him on that. When, and Rush Limbaugh was funny. At the time, he was funny. He was so much different than what he I evolved get, to. I understand that. But and he I has always at, had fairly... I, I, I get it. Just he was honestly the moderate I, back then. I, I saw the downside, but there was an entertainment side for a while. I heard it. Dave, I grew up listening to, I remember doing Windows with you. I understand. I loved when he did, uh, what's the parody songs he'd do? Like, oh, especially that Sun Coming Down on Pennsylvania yeah, Avenue. The, the, the he was Ted joking Kennedy. about Bill Clinton blowjobs. I didn't even know what they were when I was eight years old, but yeah. I thought it was funny. Well, the, the parodies that were done, especially the Ted Kennedy stuff, you knew he hated Ted Kennedy. Yeah. But the parodies, they were funny. I do remember those. I mean, he I, was clever. He was an entertainer. He was an entertainer. Then but he then, became a demagogue. I'm just well, saying, I think, he, is, I think for his, his well, audience. Well, he was conservative. He had a conservative bent. His I, audience I changed, and he followed his audience. That's what I think. But Ben. And, uh, and that's, it's, it's like Tucker Carlson, all these people. Their audience, that's. It's a, what's the wagon, the dog, the tail wagon, yeah, yeah, the dog yeah. type thing. That, that's the kind of thing. And, and by the end, when, when Donald Trump gave. Rush Limbaugh, the what, Medal of Freedom? To me, that was the ultimate of. of it's gone to the. This is the, really the gone to The tail is wagging the dog. Yeah. The dog is not wagging the tail. Well, this could be a, a a second segment in some points, but we got We got to end it because we are. Oh God, this is almost a double S segment. This is going to be an editing nightmare. But we will take a break and get back. And now we got some interesting topics to come about World War II and British TV shows. We'll be right back. Was that shirt big enough? Yes, it is. Thank you. All right, we are starting. We're gonna start. Let's do. Let's do World War Two. I was gonna do British uh, first, Dave. Or do you want to do British? No, let's do World War Two. All right. So, because I'm not sure how much I'm gonna to have to say about British. So. I know. Well, that's the point. Uh, I don't know how much Mom's gonna say about uh, World War Two, and I don't know how much you're gonna say about. 
the reason why I want, well, this is why I wanted to have you on for British and her on for World War II, because Dave, while this topic is World War II, it's more about why you are fascinated with World War II. That is more so what this topic is about. So the topic that he suggested was World War II, the Eastern Front. Now, anyone who out there is not a World War II aficionado or, uh, you know, history buff or anything like that. First off, a couple things you got to know about my dad. I'm a history major and a political science major. The reason is because of this man. He has been a history buff his entire life. He's, all he reads is history. All he watches is, well, at least when I was growing up, was Hitler documentaries and World War II stuff, the History Channel. I, we, he loves Hitler. He lo- loves Hitler isn't the way I would phrase it. But, you know, yeah, he's he's fascinated. By, I mean, my fascination with all the dark and macabre stuff, I think, comes from him. Uh, a guy who's always been uh, infatuated with one of the most dark and macabre periods in human history. And I am curious uh, to find out a couple of things about why he's interested in what, what uh, Deb, my mother thinks about this, but let's just do a couple. I want to just do a couple setting things for W uh, W two Eastern front for you. Those who you don't know, and I really listen to these numbers, uh, Dave, tell me if these numbers match up your research. Of the 70 to 85 million deaths attributed to World War II, about 30 million or so is directly from the Eastern Front. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and it might be higher. Might be higher. I mean, look, they say 70 to 85. The the margin of error is 15 million people. So, yes, that is a large margin of error, which is crazy to think about. Like when we think about wars and stuff now, 80 million people is hard to fathom. And this goes back to the uh, American education thing. I know when I was growing up and I was taught World War II, I don't know about the two of you, we learned a lot about the 6 million Jews, which is a good thing, an important thing to learn about. But I don't think that we often heard 80 million people total. We didn't focus on the Russian death. We didn't focus on the Japanese death. We didn't focus on the German death. We didn't, I mean, what's the American death count? It's like 500,000, right? It's actually under five. I think it's four hundred and. Not that that's nothing. We lost more in the Civil War. It's about the pandemic. It, if, if if you add up pandemic the, killed more. If you add up the North and the South in the Civil War, it's more than we lost in World War Two. Germans in just the Eastern Front lost about five point five million. Russians, I uh, have about nine million or so. Is that a, that sounds about right to your day? Yeah. What, what was America? America, this is 9 million Russians in the Eastern Front alone. Americans' total World War II was a little bit less than 500,000. So, so, oh, 500,000. So, when I say pandemic, yeah, pandemic is. Yeah. So, so, so but the, the point is the fact that all I heard in this country in America was, yeah, we came in and won the war for all you guys. We always say I know. That. that is the perception America always had, and it drives me insane. So, this is my point. When the, the reason I got interested in the Eastern Front, I had to do with a podcast I listened to, but the, what Americans don't realize, I, like you, was raised with this idea of, you know, our impact on World War II and yada, yada, yada. Which we did have. Well, of course we did. But then to hear it said that eight out of nine of the German soldiers that were killed in World War II, the Russians killed them. People have no idea the amount, the size of the war on the Eastern Front, just the Russians and the Germans, is the biggest war that's ever happened. And it is... Leave, leave the Americans out. Just that. It's the biggest war that's... That's the best way to put it. It's the biggest war that's ever happened. Close. Ever. Ever in the history of ever. And 
I mean, we like to talk about Omaha Beach and, you know, yada, yada. And Which are crazy stories and all that. Battle of the Bulging. I'm not denigrating that. We have the scale of what happened on the Eastern Front is just enormous. Well, and you and I would say specifically are, are kind of obsessed with Russian culture and Russian history in general in terms of the idea of Russians are... I always consider them kind of like trickster gods, like they're very mischievous. And they also have this weird like machismo that I kind of admire in it at some points, but it's also this kind of like, they do not value human life as very, it's very cheap. I, so, I think they realize, and they would just throw bodies at problems. Exactly. They, it's, when you look at the Russians in World War II, they lost between 24, 30 million people. By the way, just take a second. Think about this. 24, Wisconsin, where we live, is what, 9 million people? Oh, no, I think it's 6 million. 6 million? So that's like six Wisconsins gone. Half of those were soldiers, the other half were civilians. And half of these things were, there were one gun for every three Russians or whatever. So some of these battles, they're going, hey, when that dude dies, pick up his gun and keep fighting. And if you're afraid of what I just told you and you try to run, I'm going to fucking kill you. So it, in the war... Typically, they, if you want to say 60 million died, 20 of those were military, 40 million were civilian. I mean, it, we just don't think of it in those terms. How many how many civilians in the U.S. died in World War II? I think it's like, if you don't, obviously we're ignoring Hawaii because four, five? <laughs> yeah. it, it's hard to, fa- it is very frustrating them. As I grew through history, I remember going from eighth grade history to high school where like everything was about the picture of the guy kissing the nurse with the WW2 parade, you know, that very iconic one. It was that stuff and like us coming in in Normandy and like, yeah, it was all about how how terrifying and sad it was. And it mostly was about just the European front and Nazis and how bad Auschwitz was, which all is true. Didn't learn about the Eastern front basically at all minus kind of like mentions of it the pacific front was kind of covered and it was mostly just about the atomic bomb and basically i don't think we ever discussed the 80 million like the death toll total and also i think it was this we never talked about the post-war stuff either which the 10 years in europe because america the war was not fought here the 10 years after world war ii is some of the most fascinating shit i've ever heard in my entire life and those 10 years of like rebuilding Germany and rebuilding Russia and all that stuff is, I can't fathom it. And we didn't have to do so one so thing. The book, the book, because that's a great segue. Is it we'll not? Get there. We'll get there. No, but is it not a good segue? What he just, what he just said. Oh. So Leon Uris's yes. Armageddon, which is how Berlin was split up after the By, by the way, this might be an ongoing uh, segment that I might have where occasionally you just pop in and recommend books because you have so many good ones. So this is Leon Uris, Armageddon. And Armageddon. And Great book. An old book. I mean, we, we are talking a copyright from, I don't know, probably the 40s. But the, the point is, it is the best book for viscerally understanding what it was like after the war ended and Russia had half of Berlin, and then the Americans, the French, and the British had the other half. Which, by the so way, one of the countries. So we'll get there. Okay. Let me just. So, 
For example. <laughs> oh, Dave's pulling out his notebook. He's got notes. Well, I mean, Germany lost six million soldiers. Well, just in the Eastern Front. And two million civilians in the war. Compare that with what Russia Russia lost 25% of its population killed or wounded. This is the type of stuff. I mean, this, those this, numbers are staggering. The crazy thing about Russia, too, is when you go back in history, that happens every, like, 30 years with Russia. They no, that's what I'm saying. When they just throw bodies at stuff. Well, it's like do because they when don't you go through, like, the, se- the, the they 1700s, the 1800s of Russia, it's like, oh, a famine killed 12 million the there. A war killed 30 million China, there. And you're just like, good God, every 10 years, they just have, like, so, a wipeout. So, I, and actually, yeah. I should paraphrase this. When you're Stalin's country, quote, or India tri- doesn't value it's, a, it's attributed to Stalin that one death is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you lose a five. Exactly. Tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. It's one of the scary. So it's one of the all-time most terrifying, and honestly, what's the scariest part about it is it's true. It is probably one of the scariest quotes of all time. It, it is, it and you really know what? It truly is. is. And he believed in it, and he, in a lot of ways, he wasn't wrong. Well, it, what is that's the most it, messed it up part about true. it? Well, you know, and what a lot of people don't understand too is who the Germans killed. I mean, six million Jews in the concentration camps and whatever. They probably killed between 11 and 15 million people. Okay. Uh, Romas, homosexuals. Gypsies. The uh, Polish. Oh, my God. Did the Polish get screwed in that war? Gays, disabled. The largest percentage of people that died in the war in terms of population are the Poles. First, the Germans came in. Well, the okay. Russians came in. So I'm actually really glad you're getting into this because in, specifically with the Eastern Front, the two things I wanted to touch on was Poland and Ukraine. Good Lord. Are there two places that have historically gotten More wrecked throughout history? The Ukrainians were thrilled when the Germans came in because they thought, well, we're being liberated from these fucking Russians because we just lost five or six million, whatever it was, in the 30s because of what Stalin did. And then it turned out that well, all Hitler wanted to do was get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was like, they it's got going, screwed that way. They were disposable. Well, well, and and, that, and disposable. Then, then, the, then the Russians come back in and the Russians hated the Ukrainians. Well, so, so Ukraine, though. Hungarians are the same way. They're hated exactly. by everybody. You know, they, they get, I mean, Genghis Khan comes down. Well, this is what they, I was going to say. I mean, so historically, I never realized, I never realized the brutality of Ukraine. Until about a couple of years and ago. And Hungary. And Hungary. And part of it is, uh, and it was, the, and Bosnia, what's his name? Robert, Robert Evans was the one that made right. me realize this. Was Ukraine, you know why Ukraine and Hungary get so much shit? It's because of their location. But you know, but it's kind of. It's where the it's their, lo- it's, it's their location, up. but it's because they live in a very bountiful area. They're the breadbasket oh, so of Eastern Ukraine Europe. And they're different. surrounded by warring areas that can't grow stuff. So it's like on, on paper, you're like, oh, what a lucky people. They get all this great farmland. Nope. Because everybody wants your farmland. They're never not and at war. And they want to take you over. Exactly. So it's just, you're just getting passed around by who owns all you. All the time. And Poland, so it's never the, peace. Poland, the Ukraine, and Hungary, I think are three countries in that part of the world that have been fucked constantly. Sometimes, constantly. sometimes getting a good centuries. situation can be a long-term centuries bad thing. Centuries of yeah. just getting fucked. Yep. Seriously. So anyway, it, it when, when you look at those numbers, I mean, it, it's kind of... Uh, What's the word I, I want to say? 
I mean, it's hard for modern people to fathom it because well, we get. This is where I'm saying Stalin's right that it becomes a statistic. Yeah. By the way, but now we have this recorded Dave on tape saying Stalin's. Did you say Stalin's always right, or he's just right in this one one? He was right on that. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> it, are you pro or against Stalin, Dave? I just want this on record. You know what? There's a couple things this is, Stalin oh, this, did right this is in terms of fighting the Nazis. Slippery slope here, but okay. It is a slippery slope. <laughs> but Stalin is one of the biggest. Uh, Stalin, Mao, and Hitler are the three of this cent of the last century that are the biggest. Uh, and by the way, Hitler is third. And I believe, I actually think there's other people that are, Hitler is an all-time, obviously, monster and all that stuff. Uh, Stalin, I think, killed about three times as much people as Could Hitler. Be. I mean, Very well. Hitler Not is our well. boogeyman of all time for good reasons, and he should be, because fuck the Nazis and everything about him. But in this country, we do kind of view them as the all-time supervillain, which is deserving. But we also don't talk about other super... The Russians were just as bad, if not worse. You know, it's interesting. By the end of 1942, that the intelligence of the American... Uh, the What is it? OAS? Was they didn't want Hitler dead. Because they had these assassination plans. Yeah, because he was an insane meth addict. And it's like, he's making terrible he decisions was, by the end of it. Exactly. They yeah. wanted him alive. Yeah. They figured... Well, it's like you always told me, they couldn't have got to where they were without Hitler. Right. But they also lost because of Hitler, which is how these things always work. I mean, look at Trump. It takes an insane person to do something that sane people shouldn't do. But that is a short, it doesn't last. Yeah. You can do, you can accomplish things by being insane, but often you can't long-term, no, it's not sustainable. No, it, that, that's the way. I would say you could on it. His generals kept you, telling him, this is insane, you, don't do it. And then he invaded Poland no, anyway, and it worked for a little bit. do it for a it short period of time. It, it worked for a while, but it doesn't the work for long term. Sustainability is absolutely this idea of That's why fascist regimes are always short shelf life. They are. Because so the talent gets worse and worse. And because people yeah. start going, are you kidding me? I mean, it's why, I mean, Trump still has value, and he still has power and all that right now, but... The bottom line is, he is, I, 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 you know, I hope and I believe that people get sick of, of dictators because they're boring. They, they say never the will. same. They never no, will. No, 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 they always like a new dictator. Yes. They so get, you're actually both right because Dave, you're right. Dictator. You're right that there's always new fascism dictator. and authoritarianism. They always as love a, new the new frontier, but the old dictators, honestly, karma always catches no, well, up with them Mom, because both, they're stupid. You're and both right. You're both right that authoritarianism as a concept will never go away. But what happens with dictators is. People, People get sick of that dictator, and exactly. then they want a new one. They want so a new you're one. right that it's human instinct to want to be told what to do. Some people just want that for right, whatever fucking right. reason. And that's that, just the, the thing. the craziest thing is those same people, though, if you're looking at our current situation with mass and all this, the same people who actually want to be told what to do by Donald Trump are also arguing... Don't tell me what well, to do be, about the mask. They want to be. I and don't by the way, liberals do this to do. too. Liberal, and you know what? Liberals do this too. Okay, I want I want to get this out there that because I think this is the most fun irony of the whole thing is 
all of these people who were sitting and fighting mass, blah, 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 through this whole pandemic, and they don't want to get a shot. And some of them had COVID and they're like, I don't need to get COVID. Now, when the majority is no longer held hostage by the minority, those same people are pissed that everybody's going around without a mask and that they have to wear a mask if they're afraid of anything at all. And I think that is karmic justice. Well, it's almost like the the authoritarian mindset is inherently hypocritical. I mean, that's just, it's a bully mentality. It's like you do the thing that you- that, that it comes around hysterical, infuriating. Well, you know, it's no, always been. Yeah. I mean, it, but it, but it's it basically I karmic. Completely customs. agree with you. But I, okay, so we're. I do need to. So, so, so back to the Eastern Front. Well, I want to. I want to veer here a little bit though, because we're going back to the Eastern Front. But I want to touch on what I originally <laughs> was going to. I am going to edit this. I want to touch on why do you think? And I want to hear your thoughts on this too, Mom. Why does World War II fascinate you so much? Is you know it is is it just the sheer I still remember death toll and insanity of it all that you're no, just like how did this I, happen? I, I, st- I still remember looking at is it life because life, life magazine or look magazine whatever it was as a as a young man I don't know how old ten years old and they had a picture of a guy who was about to be beheaded by a Japanese with a samurai sword and I remember looking at that going just I I mean I couldn't imagine it. And honestly, I've been kind of interested, and in, maybe it's a male thing. No, there's plenty no, of it's not. there's plenty but, of true crime fans of women who like. And then the, the more I looked into to war, the more I realized, my God, I can't believe what these people that are in the war put themselves through. So it's the I'm it's stunned. the fas- it's the fascination of human extremes. I'm fascinated. Because I can't imagine myself doing this. See, that's why I, cults and serial killers, all that stuff. I'm always fascinated because, like, I've lived such a fairly normal life. I mean, middle-class Wisconsin guy. I've had a pretty good run here. I am always fascinated by the most extreme people, whether they're true believer terrorists or serial killers or cult leaders or just how war, like, you get to the point of these wars where it's, I mean, half of dictators are just political cults. I mean, it's it's this mind, it, it's the wrapping people up and like the rapture and this bloodlust that it's just a fascinating topic to me. I think you're, you inspired this in me. Mom is interested in that too, but in a very, you're more on the human level of it. I it's not so much the political. Culture. Yes. You're, I think you're more interested in see, the, like the cultural aspect. History. So, so, so I'm back to the want to see uh, meeting in, in want to see is outside of Berlin. We're in 1942, January, 1942, where, they had the meeting with Eichmann and Heydrich and about what the final solution, that's where the final solution came from, where they mechanized, you know, the 6 million Jews. And to me, I find it fascinating. They kept, no, this is one thing Germans do. Oh, I know. By the they way, this is record. so insane that they took minutes on this meeting. They took minutes. Because Germans do that. So, I know. They're so, I know. It's so, so diligent. So, it's so such a German thing. And, and they're, they're literally and writing they down. They're so competent, but I They're taking notes on competent. the biggest war crime of all time. They're so, taking notes. I know. So I know. They, they have a film on this. Because they Well, and them. by the way, this is really important because a lot of people go, well, this kind of just naturally, organically happened, and it was a lot of people making split decisions, and that's how the Holocaust happened. It's like, that has been a theory for a lot of people for a long time. That's not true. 
This was a planned thing. There was a con- there was a meeting where they sat down and planned the final solution. Well, and one of the reasons they did that was because what they were doing wasn't working. What they were doing before that, the Eisengruppen, was what's what's called the bullet holocaust. Yes. And they were having trouble because... The Nazis were killing themselves because it was too harsh on the fucking soldiers. They were drinking like crazy. Yes. And Which is, by the way, one of the scariest things to think about all time where they're like, Man, our, our troops can't handle the level of murder. It's bad for morale. It's bad for morale. That our troops people. are killing themselves because they feel so bad about killing a people that we've convinced them to hate. That we need to almost corporatize genocide in a way where it's like it's That's a it's a did. clinical setting. They came to a conclusion. It's so fucked up to think about it that they were like, "That's exactly what happened." It is what happened. You actually have summarized that better than I have heard anyone summarize. Well, no, that, this is part of this film. It's it was it on Netflix or whatever. I think it's a, a movie. I mean, I've which seen one are you it. talking about? The Want to See Conference, where and it's the banality. Of well, and this listening is listening to these guys the, talk about it, and they have the notes from it. The thing that I've. It's, that conference made me understand the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword more than anything I've ever seen. Because the idea, like when you read about Joseph Mengele and all this stuff and some of the Nazi stuff, the, the idea that a signature, someone just signing a piece of paper can result in millions of deaths or something like that. Yeah. And just an order coming up. And that person who signed it doesn't see this or have anything to do with it. And bureaucracy it's creates... Bureaucracy. It's why it I literally is creating bureaucracy. it's creating divisions it. in in handling because it. So people can't, they sign off on stuff. I, well, they it happens in this country. It's it like the amount of things you just sign up. Time, I, I know. A drone strike time. requires a signature. All that shit or whatever. It's just an insane so, thing to think about how much a signature can lead to that. that. So it's, it's kind of interesting because the guy who was there's the no first commandant at Auschwitz, his name was. H O S S, but with that funny thing over the O, so I don't know how you. It's called Newman, Dave. Come on. How do you pronounce it? House. 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 Wait. Well, how do you spell it? H O S S with that funny thing over the O. That'd probably be his. I don't know. You're the German one here, Mom. I don't speak German. So so anyway, I would think H O umlaut S S would be his. So after the war, when they had the Nuremberg stuff. He spilled the beads on everything. He was totally honest about what he did, you know, all this stuff. And if you and, can't and trust actually, a Nazi, who can you trust? Well, but it was actually <laughs> it, it was actually quite a, important because he coordinated a lot of the information that got to be known. No, it's fine to laugh at that. I mean, there is so, a part so, of, there is a part of this where this is why historians have to compare and contrast right. primary sources because a lot of people are full of shit. So this this is was actually a big part of the Nuremberg trial. So what do you think happened to him, by the way? Was he murdered by Mossad? No, they took him back to Auschwitz and they hung him. Good. Right there. Fuck him. He deserved that. Yeah. And I'm good with that. I think he was fine See, with it himself. Well, I mean, that seems like a fair ending. He was sitting there with his wife and I think three or four children and they had a house and they, you know, Auschwitz was really weird. They actually had a city. Oh my, the more I, the, that to me, and we got to, and we got to end this and we're going to go into British TV and it's like, but if there is one thing that, I have read some pretty fucked up stories in my life, and I've, I, have a, I think I have a pretty thick skin on topics. One of the things that has chilled me most to my, I've, that's freaked me out more than anything I've ever read, is about 
the normalcy of Auschwitz, how they had a theater and a grocery store for the people working there. No, they had they, families there. They, they made had, it the a German community. soldiers. They I made it a and like it was a but like a lot of cults and stuff. It was isolated, so they were by themselves. So this yeah. stuff became normal very yeah, fast. The wives, but your, your kind kids, of kids knew, are playing soccer. The wives kind of knew there was something, but the they husband, but they were isolated. But they were isolated. They, they had leagues, soccer leagues. They had, and, they, and they had an opera. Theater. They had a fucking opera. Yeah, they had a fucking opera at Auschwitz. Yeah. I mean, it's the, they created the, the a fact village. that you can you can do these mental gymnastics where you can trick something someone into thinking this is totally normal. And there's kids playing soccer where there's a fence and there's Jewish refugees getting. Murdered, and they're seeing it, and they're just like, whatever. This is just normal. No, but they don't. They're not seeing it. Well, it's 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 a mixture of blissful ignorance and and willing delusion, and it, it's, it's a I lot think of it's it. It's a willing delusion. It, it, it is, it's but it, it, it's not just. It, I mean, they're also they don't much have much of a choice. I mean, it's comp, It's more complicated. Like when they talk about you know the little Nazis, they used to call them, which is people who weren't. Full fledged Nazis. They didn't even like them, but, but they, they just kind of went in line with it. Well, they were big. It's think really about the kids and, that's my and point. the wives. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? You're you're growing. You know, you're going to die. It, it's you a know very kind. It, it, look, it's not saying that they're good, and it's not saying that they should be like forgiven. But I'm saying it's a very easy thing to look they're, at someone and go, "I wouldn't have done that." They're complicit, but. Of course they're complicit, but, but it's the, hard to think that you no, wouldn't have been complicit in a... No. Most people would be complicit in a circumstance. Like oh, well, think about this. Yeah. Your husband has, and it's always the husband, because in this kind of environment, it's the husband. And, the no, I mean, the, that's yeah, yeah, the reality in yeah, that yeah, time, time yeah. at that place. Right. And the reality is if the wife or the kids would have done any kind of balking at any of this, they would have been killed. And they would have. Yeah. And they would have been. That, that's that's the bottom line. And so survival kicks in at that point. And it's not a matter of, am I going to be a hero? Am I going to be? I mean, this idea after the fact always bugs me because the it's truth, really easy I know, to think it, that you'd be a hero. It's so self, I mean, aggrandizing. It's like, Fuck, if you weren't there and you don't know what went on and, and if you don't understand survival, survival means you survive. And, you know, sometimes you survive so that you well, this, can get out and you can talk about this and you can tell the truth and so you can tell. This the is, this is why this is, by really the way, this is the same. This is that. the same. And then we have to end this. But we, this is the exact same thing about when people judge people who won the lottery and then ruin their life or something like that. Or like pro athletes, how they get like ego or whatever that. To me, to me, it's always been like, you really think you'd handle that better? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you would. Who knows? I'd but it is so, it is so easy. Put you back it is so easy to think, I wouldn't have done that. Exactly. Maybe, maybe you would have. But let's be honest, because I know myself, I think I have pretty staunch principles, all this stuff. I know that if shit came to the fan, I'm probably going to be the 90% where I kind of fall in line because I'm a human and I'm, I'm and a survival. And you want to survive. That... I don't think that that's necessarily. I mean, it is a bad thing, but it's it's a natural thing. It is it is what you were instinctually programmed it's to do. And anybody who thinks that they wouldn't problem. have done that, I I hope you're right, but you don't no, know. You're full you're of shit. Well, you don't know if there. Some people do. Some people so, will die for their beliefs, and I, I hope I'm that so, person. I so, hope I am that person, but I don't know if I am, and I never will until I get tested. So, and I so, hope I never have to get tested. By the way, so, so, fucking hope I don't. So we're, when I talk about the bullet holocaust. There are, were Nazis, SS 
people after the war who talked about how, well, you know, we're going to shoot these people. And you've seen the films where they run into the pits and everything and they're naked and everything. And they're telling the people to hold still because if you hold still, I'll kill you instantly. And they were, they're trying to be compassionate. They're in trying their to own be way. efficient. They're trying to be efficient. But also compassionate in but their own way. Think about that mindset. It's it's a fucked up compassion, but in in, in the context of the circumstances. But there's like okay, it technically you're is you're gonna die, but let me just do it humanely. It's a okay? mercy I mean but it's that, a mercy. But killing. to me that is my fascination with history as well, is the level of belief that you can get to. To me that is to me, history a justification. So, so, and and by the way, I will say, and that justification throughout history, 99 percent of the time is bullshit. I would say that one out of a hundred wars are warranted or like really worthwhile are. doing. So, my last thing I, I will say is, you know, one thing that Hitler killed. underestimated oh, is women. They just in general, Dave. You just have a <laughs> no. no. The Russians. Use the women. Oh, yes, yes. So, so did the, the French, so oh, did yeah. everybody. So the, and he the, did the under, si- he, under- si- he thought they were for childbearing. The size of the military force. Oh, you're saying you're Russians. saying in world tour and, and under- because we didn't utilize our women, women is what you're saying. Well, you're, well we did domestically, but not the Americans, but the Russians actually used he underestimated as a women, fighting force. Period. They were, I think they called them night witches. They'd have women fly in on these biplanes. And then they'd cut their motors well, and then you know, fly in and then drop a bomb. Nobody would hear them coming. You know what's really they were snipers. Apparently, women are very good snipers. But they didn't care if they lost them. Either. Well, what's they really part of Russia, 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 and like they male. They were dispensable. Russia well, history with women is, is dispensable. Russian with history with women is very interesting though because it's like it's such a patriarchal society. Do, but but they really treat the, women as equals on well, some levels. On, that's what I say. On some level, it's weird because it's a highly well, patriarchal they use society. Use them as weapons. Well, it's like it's like the they, perfect example. Of this is Catherine the Great, where in the 1700s, the idea that a she's woman is not a no 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 no. Can't use her as an example. I'm not no. Listen to what I'm saying. Though. I'm saying the fact Russia. that of course not, of course not. But I'm saying there are leftovers. And by the way. After her, it went, swung the pendulum, swung back the other way. My point being is the fact that in the 1700s, a woman could legally rule is kind of fucked up in the sense that it goes, you wouldn't think that that was possible because it was an incredibly patriarchal society. So I'm saying their, their relationship with women is, is more complicated than we give because our, our, our country, I think we like to think of how progressive and stuff we are. And we are very patriarchal and stuff. We've never had a woman leader. So. Russia, say what you want about them and how patriarchal they are. They've had women leaders, at least. That's kind of interesting, at least. I don't know what that means fully, but it's interesting. That's actually a really good point. I've always kind of felt like Russia, I actually think Russia, I've always felt from, you know, because I love the mystery, the detective stuff and all that. And I always felt like they kind of appreciated women, but they very much viewed them as sexual tools, you know, to, you have to kind of, this is. So do we historically. So have we. Honestly, I agree with you. And I, 
So it's very hard for me. Sometimes I sit and try to be this patriot and think. So about, here's what I would no, say. And I think you're right. I think. And a, I no, think here's what, what I. Here's no, the difference with America. Here's, here's, right there here's the difference with really the, No, here's important. the difference with America in terms of. But you're right. We I, use women just as. I think in America do. we go. We have this fucked up. It's it. On the surface, it seems almost like protective. More noble. No, this is what they do. The whole idea of women and children first. We equate women with children. We view them as this vulnerable, helpless species that we have to protect. And they really are just child bearers. So the brand to Americans is we have to protect them because they're so fragile and weak. Which is a way to keep them down in an indirect way. Oh, it definitely it's is. so condescending. You can't, they can't Especially do anything. with black women. Yes, I'm just talking about generalizing. Yeah. In Russia, because of how harsh of a society is, they view women as useful. They know that they're capable and willing. You just said that. They're they they realize their tools. importance. They're tools. It's a male dominant. They would prefer a man to be in charge, but they understand that because of the harshness yeah. of their culture, at times women are going to have to step up. In America, we're like, fuck that. Women can never step up. They're not capable. We need to protect them. Not in equally. Russia, it, yes. I'm saying historically, this is, I think, America's mindset. We have to protect them. They're just like children. So, so the, and there's a part of that, like chivalry and stuff. I, you so, know. So, so this is where I'm back to the Russians viewed women as still being soldiers. That's they a, did. But I'm saying the fact that they, David, in a weird they way, look, there was a, there was a higher level of respect because in a way. In a lot of In a ways, weird, fucked up, roundabout way, there was. That, right? What, when they recognized that. that women could be good snipers. I, well, but that's what I'm saying. We, we didn't think about that until like the 90s in America. And we wouldn't, we the, didn't let women join yeah, the military until like the 80s. They could fly airplanes. Well, you know, uh, and a lot of the airplanes they flew were, were just logistical stuff. But why not use them for that? I mean, a woman can fly an it's airplane. It's a very pragmatic approach, which is... One very of my favorite things about Russia is I think they're a very, like, I always call them trickster gods. I think they're kind of pragmatic. They're brutal and mischievous and, like, very practical. don't have a lot of regard for human life, practical. but they're incredibly practical. We are bullshitters. We are a grifter nation, and we have all this, yeah. like, surface-level whatever, but it's not real. Russians are very practical in a fucked-up way. Because they live in a... They have to be. Because they have 12 million of them die every 10 years. Like, there's a fucked-up thing that has happened for the last 300 years. You know, it's almost like... So, are we still on the thing? We're still recording. I'm going to... And I'm getting kind of drunk too. But we're going to transition to British radio. And uh, this is going to be a special episode, I'm calling it. This might be a two-hour episode. But uh, we will be right back. I just need the lighter, Mom. That's it. The Great yes. War. Yes. Oh, all right. The history of the Great War. And this guy saw. Oh, yes. Okay. Like a geek. Well, you know what, yeah. Dave? The best, the best, uh, the best history people are the biggest geeks. You know what? Here's another. This guy's a, is a is a computer scientist guy, and it, he's obsessed with World War One. World War. Uh, so I. Uh, it's get funny. A hat. We gotta get going. Okay. Yeah. All right. And we're back. Anyway, uh, that was some fun World War II discussion. Uh, Even though I left a couple things out, I could have brought Dave, up. That's fine. Dave, we will have you back for further World War II analysis. Don't Stalingrad. worry. We'll stop. By the way, did you ever watch that movie that I recommended? Enemy at the Gates, the Stalingrad sniper movie? Yes. What did you think of it? it? It was interesting. It was incomplete, but it was a, a oh, It's a movie. It's yeah, a movie. It's a movie. But it's the best Stalingrad movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it might be not a ton of them. 
uh, well, they call it Leningrad now, right? It's not. It's still not Stalingrad. No, it's well, no, it's not Stalingrad anymore. But it's isn't not it Leningrad? Leningrad? What is it now? I'm not even sure. I think Ben might be right. If you don't know, he probably does. I, I More think, likely to be Leningrad than Stalingrad. Let's put it that. I way. think it. I think it reverted back to Leningrad yeah, after the the, the Cold War. But anyway, that's not important. And we're back. Oh, it's Beloit. No, it's not. <laughs> What's your old Beloit joke, by the way? A fart in a bathtub. That's what it is. Yes. God, I used that so much when we played them in high school football. Anyway, uh, now on the flip side. So we just talked for a while about World War II, and I guess we kind of touched on why it's of interest to Dave. And uh, I think it was an interesting conversation. We're going to go on the other end of the spectrum where, just like my father is obsessed with uh, World War II, my mother is, uh, is in a different way obsessed with British television. And I, wa- I want to touch on a, a variety of things here. I want to understand why. I like a lot of British shows, too. All right. Deborah, what do you... What, first off, what is the first that you can remember British show that you got into? Like, what is the appeal... I understand a lot of it, but like, can you just articulate a little bit about why you like British television and why you've paid for subscriptions for like Acorn TV and BBC stuff and why you just, you seem to have a draw to English television. I think the acting's better. But I think that I, I like clever television and I think British television is much more clever than American television. I think American television is about celebrities. I think it's about they figure out a star and they put a show. Can you sit there, please? It's not, it's it's just not picking up. And they put a show around a star and I don't think the acting is all that great. And I think with British television, most people that, get into television series have acted on the stage. I mean, Brits sit and that's how so glad you brought that up. their actors are all trained by doing plays, by being in theater and all this other stuff. Americans are all about celebrities. And the bottom line is, I, I think I got, I, I don't even, I can't even remember probably why I, well, the show that probably got me into British television was Midsummer Murders. And give me a quick give me a quick description. And Midsummer of what Murders was it's a detective show, but it's set in these bucolic, beautiful uh, villages of uh, outside of London. You know, in the English countryside, Cotswolds, and all this other stuff. And they're be- and and I think what it is I, I like the accents I like I liked having this these visuals of these beautiful perfect manicured little uh, grounds I think that I'm a Britophile I think that I I've been to London three times I I I think it's a beautiful so what, city. So what, what about I, English culture? Is is it like the fact that here's my theory. I think you like like magical stuff and like English culture has kind yeah. of almost got this like fanta- yeah. fantastic. It's, it's it's King Arthur. It's King Arthur. It's, it's like King it's Arthur. like Harry Potter oh, adjacent. Totally. It's like totally. uh, that's part of it. But part of it is London is an ancient city. 
And London is, and again, it, you know, it's our language. So you're not, and I, I, I like Actually, Paris. I like, I like other, I, I like, you know, Europe in general, but the bottom line is London and England, you've got the language issue and it makes everything simple. So, so let's combine real quick the history and the British show. Dave, how old of a town is London? There are Roman ruins there. Good there Lord. are. I mean, when you actually look at yeah, it's really. Um, I, I mean, I don't ostensibly how old, but I mean, when you look at but so societally, old, someone's there, there's been a culture growing there for thousands of years. Oh, exactly, a, a thousand years, fifteen hundred, oh, two thousand, whatever you want to call it. And and actually, when you look at the history of London, especially in some England, of, not, especially not in London. some of its dark days when yeah. The pollution was so bad when the city got large and the sewage going going in into the river. What's the river? The Thames. Thames, yeah. Um, I mean, it, there are times when London to me was a sewer. Literally, was a nightmare. It was. I mean, when you're when you all the the things about you know the Ripper and all this other stuff. It was really a dark, but all cities across Europe were like that. It so I, I just, London. this is, this is kind of crazy to think about. So in the year 100, the capital of the Roman province of Britannia in literally the year 100, Roman London had a population of around 60,000. That's the population of Sheboygan. So okay. in the year 100, we had Sheboygan in London. Because and that's they, not that's not nothing. But, but they were a port. The thing is, it, they were surrounded by water. Of course, and everything uh, yeah. at that time was. But all think of about think of water. America is an infant in terms of a, a society we and culture. Are. Yeah, we are totally are. Part of the my biggest and that's the, all these previous conversations we've had without acknowledging the fact that we're infants mm -hmm. is is like it makes the conversation almost. Well, moved. and this this is when you were talking about the reason why I wanted to to bring up the date was because. I think the biggest reason you talk about American acting is celebrity in British acting is a, a respected profession and it's been around and it's kind of like and there it's is not, it's stage. acting. You can be a local play actor in Britain and it's like a career here. It's like you go to New York or LA and you it's all or nothing. You either get famous yes. or you like are a waiter. Oh, it's God, not, yes. you know, like you can be, a, you can have a hobby of acting and do some improv and, or maybe you're like a play actor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You're probably not making a great living off of it. You can make a technical career in London just being like a play actor. So you're Theater saying you're saying you're, you just big. think that you think if you go to London, London is like New York with theater. Okay, and and the thing about well, New York it, has theater. Well, no, I'm saying in in the United States you go to New York for theater. Oh, okay, yes, okay, okay I get what you're saying. And what I'm saying is. The th all these small theaters that you see in New York, when you go to London, it's that on steroids. New London was before New York ever happened. Okay. And so you have these, all these small theaters, but plays are the thing. And when you look at Br a lot of British television, like on BritBox or on Acorn or whatever, it's, Sometimes, I mean, David, you would say, like, the show, as time goes by, Judy Dench, when before Judy Dench became Dame, Dame, 
Judy Dench. I like damn Judy Dench. <laughs> yeah, but Dame Judy Dench. She was an actress and she was a great actress. And there's a show on Brickbox called <clears throat> As Time Goes By. And it's when she was young and she's just in a show. And and this has like maybe 10 seasons. And she's just an actress. But as David would would I think confirm. It's like you're what every episode is like watching a play. The people in it, you are, you, so, you are, you are getting actually theater. In so, their, so, in so let me show. ask you this though. So, is your appeal to British television? Do you think it's more so that you think it's, it's theater and acting? Well, oh no. <laughs> what I'm asking is, do you find? Do you think? And this might be a hard question to answer. Do you think that it's more interesting because? of British culture inherently? Do you think that's part of it? Or is it more so that you think just you like the British acting institution and therefore it creates better dialogue and content in the play you like, the and second, it just happens to be British? The, or do you actually like British latter, color, the, culture? I like, it's both, but I think it's the latter. I think that the, the, the way that they train their actors, I think the lack of pretensions, I think the lack of worrying about that they're beautiful or, or they, they, I think the way that they deal with their actors and trained them traditionally and everything, it was about the acting. It wasn't about, are you beautiful? Is your nose the right shape? Are you facing the camera it's more right, about the, story. the right way? It's totally about the play or the movie or the show or the whatever, and you get into the character and you are what it is and you're ugly, you're beautiful, you're, you're just deformed. It doesn't matter. It's about the role. It's not about, Oh, I want to be a movie star. It's nothing like that. The Brits are completely different. You know, you know, what's funny though. I would say in modern times, we're getting better as Americans, and I think Brits are getting diluted a little bit because I think and they. I think, I think we're right. rubbing off on them a little bit, and they're and, going and, more blockbustery reality and we're TV watching shows. Watching more of their and shows, we're, and we're going. We like these shows. Yeah, so I mean, how look, do we do this? the last? What I'd say, you know, maybe Sopranos and stuff kicking off. Prestige TV in America is pretty awesome right now. There's a lot of amazing acting and story writing, but that's I, that's modern. It is modern. And you know what? I think it might be watching a lot of this British stuff. And what I would like, because I actually think American television is doing some really good stuff, like what you just said. But I would also say is the thing about the Brit Box and the Midsummer Murders or shows like that that make them really unique against the American genre is American is it's it's gritty it's dirty it's it's dark there's no humor in it and when you look at the midsummer's 102 shows or more maybe 110 at this point there's always a sense of humor there's always this there's a murder but there's a it's an hour and a half and it's it's like this really interesting uh, journey that you have through the English countryside and and there's humor and there's character development and it's quirky and it's all this other stuff and it's just fun and I think American shows are dark for the most part if you're going to do a murder kind of show it's always dark I would say the last their shows are not dark they're not we dark. are having a bit of a renaissance I think where finally American culture is is 
lighter. Starting to make that almost dark humor turn. What, what show? What would, oh, well, shit's, well. What's the newest one with, on Fox, that Prodigal Son or whatever? That's the one that, oh, that would that's, be a dark, intro- that's a dark-ass but, show that's got a and, sense of and humor. And that's, you're right. So my point is, it's modern, it's, it's only the last horror, couple of years. As horrid as that, that theme is i agree with you michael sheen is fabulous well i mean my point is i think no, america is getting right. very tongue-in-cheek They're i think getting- britain britain has done so much horrific stuff that they have inherently have a dark uh humor because that's it's graveyard often you cope with the They're, crimes that you do uh, yeah, by exactly. by making jokes and, of it and they have we're getting there as a culture it's not they, necessarily all bad and, i mean it's and they have up, thousands of years of that's my point is no, it's we're right. the baby phase and we're I still we're still trying to be like when He's teenagers care about asleep. social media anyway so to to bring this over to dave who might be falling asleep or not, no, I'm not falling i know asleep. you're just Dave, you, I wouldn't say are a fan of British television, but I know that you started watching Midsummer Murders with, with Deb and, and you've gotten, no, you've gotten into some shows, right? You, you like some of these shows now. I do like, and I agree with her uh, assessment that it, it feels like you're watching a play. And the acting's so good. Yeah, the acting is good, and it, which makes it different than a lot of American Cuisine. I mean, we have been to a, a number of places. When we were in London, we went to what, two places, right. right? Which ones, by the way? Where were they? Mouse Trap and. I don't know what that is. Um, so she remembers. Oh, and then there was a really the hot play. Well, it was a gay time. thing. Well, yeah, and it was a it was a really <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but it was about the play that you needed to see. And what time. does what does mom remember? When you most? say a gay thing, like it was about like like what it was about. Uh, no, it was a gay themed play, right. but that wasn't it. I had such a hard time with where my seat was and everything. Well, that, that that's it, what I was going to. It bring became up. a real she, issue. She had I, a problem. We were sitting in the front row. I I I, I and, the and the play. Place for her. It was like it wasn't even like I could enjoy the play, and the play was it had gotten all these great reviews and everything, and I was just so freaked out by the location and the height of the chairs and all this. Is stuff. this in so, London? Yes. In a so her vertigo, she had yeah, trouble my with sitting in the front became row. Became a, a, a big issue, but the play was, you know, at the time it was a really big. I I, I can't say I loved the play. I thought it was. Uh, I it, didn't like it. It would have been like uh, to me. It got old. It was a musical. <laughs> I know I didn't like it either. I and it was fine. Okay, keep us going, Ben. I know, I'm getting you back. So, so I'm not. I'm not big on musicals either. I love. What I, you know I what I'm musicals. really not well, big on. I like good musicals. What I'm really not. I big still on, think one of the most vivid memories I have as a child Joseph, is you taking me to Joseph and the Technicolor Jinko. And that changed everything for you guys. I knew that because you guys were listening. You and Adam were listening to the music because I got the soundtrack because Kathleen had taken me. To that, she had to, you know, Kathleen is the so, one. Uh, who's the main guy? Donny Osmond. Okay, <laughs> but you have to understand, Kathleen. He was good in that, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was. But Kathleen is the one. I mean, I wasn't, we weren't in a position where I could be spending money on, on these Broadway shows in Chicago. And Kathleen is the one. She liked me, and 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 she wanted someone to go with her on the bus. And so we would take the bus down from Oakwood 
or from, uh, no, she was at Tamarack at the time. And and she wanted a companion. And I went down to Chicago with her and we would go and to these plays. And she just was, I I mean, I had never been to Broadway plays. I'd never been to a play in Chicago or anything. And the reality is she got me into this stuff. And and when we went to Joseph and the Amazing, uh, you know, Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream Technicolor dream coat. I was like, my kids and David would love this. And I had gotten the soundtrack. And you guys were listening to because I that would be mm-hmm. my music. And, I think I could probably sing that whole soundtrack and, to this day. I'm not and, even kidding. And I remember thinking, okay, because I, I mean, again, I wasn't all that cultured or anything. And I was just like, this is the one play that I think I would like my family to do because I thought you guys would enjoy it. And we ended up going and we stayed at a very cheap hotel. And I think it was like, a, I remember the hotel and I, you know, I don't even want to say it, but it was cheap. And we took you down there and we got into a box and you guys saw that play. And, and I always was like, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of culture. Oh, we didn't have what money, grade, but what, I what wanted to What grade do you think you I was culture. in? I because I don't remember how old I was, but I I cannot tell you how how I vividly maybe I remember that. Fourth point. or fifth grade. That's about that. Okay, that's and I mean I think that's kind of about the time. So you remember the name of the theater? It was the one. Uh, it was uh, Schubert Oriental. Schubert. Schubert, yeah, I think in Chicago and. And, I remember what the and, theater and looked like. And we stayed at this really because the hotel it was like the Allenton or something like this. I don't, I don't remember It was that a at all. really crappy hotel, and it was close. I mean, we did it, and you know, it it was just we didn't have a lot of money. But I just remember Kathleen had given me that experience, and I thought you would really like it. Well, to this day, I would say. In terms of things I remember from fourth grade, that's one of the most profound ones. And uh, isn't that interesting? Hey, it has fueled a love of musicals to this day. I still love musicals. Well, and I, I'm, I'm as a mother, I'm glad to hear that because I didn't, we didn't do that very much. I mean, that was the play. That was the play. But I thought you guys love the music. What other plays? What are some famous plays you've seen? Well, Kathleen took me to like um, Phantom of the Opera. She took me to Les Mis. She took me to Rent. She took me to. Do you have a favorite? Um, out of all of them, <coughs> out of all of them, I would say that Joseph was one of my favorites. So you know what her worst was? We went to what was it, Cats. Oh, but in Las Vegas, but it was it, but it was the setting in Las Vegas. So anyway, we went to a mega theater in so Las I, Vegas. Anyway, then, so I knew hated. we were just getting an intermission, and her head hit my shoulder. And she fell asleep. She she was falling asleep. But it was this big mega theater. It, 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 after it, if you've been to places, you see like, in New York, in, they're in, in Vegas. In, in I mean, Vegas, we, these venues, yeah. you're going like, are I mean, you kidding no. me? No, I mean, when we were in New York, we've seen I, I Cabaret. We've seen, we've seen these, when you see intimate yeah, we, shows. Yeah, we, we've been to off-Broadway no, plays. Yeah, and when you see plays and you're maybe 100 people in a theater, and then you're in a 2,500-person thing, it's like. There's no intimacy, and I don't like that. And New York, 
has intimacy. That's their, that's why New York is Broadway because it's all about tiny little theaters and you can you don't have thousands that can get in. You only have maybe a hundred people that can get into a, a show or whatever. And that makes it exclusive. And if it makes it exclusive, then it makes it expensive. So I, I remember, but it makes it intimate. So, so it remember, makes it I intimate. I remember cats were coming up the intermission. I'm going like, I'm bored to tears. <laughs> like, out of all the fucking plays in the world, I can't imagine awesome. you out of oh, all people. Yeah. Like, I... We you don't even like cats. I, I think you're indifferent Vegas. to musicals, a, a musical about cats. I can't imagine you finding any of this. He did not. No, I he was, did not. He I was, was bored, bored out of his tears. mind. I was thrilled she was falling asleep. Yeah, he was. I bet. Yeah, you like, should have just woken oh up and like, God, oh, yeah, it's over. Let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, I was life. trying to culture him and myself. And the bottom line well, is we uh, were yeah, I could remember you with like Joseph the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, knowing you, you'd be like, "Well, there's Egypt here. It's ancient Israel. There's there's historical stuff." Like the I, music was, and the, great. And the music, the and, music and, and the, the music great. was different genres. Was, there was an Elvis was, song. Was there was it. all that it stuff. Was, so that I can understand you like it. Cats. There's nothing about cats that I can imagine I you like. No I can't imagine one thing you would like about cats. I, and there wasn't. Yeah. One no, thing no, no I agree. I don't. And I've seen cats, and I kind of like cats. Well, no, and even the little thing of Cedar Rock Cats, you know, why Every would I want to see them? Yeah. You didn't like Mr. Mistopheles or uh, no, no. or uh, the Angelical Cats? Or what are they called? Yeah. Yeah. There is nothing no, nothing bad, there bad, bad. that is, nothing, interested nothing, me in the least that's even memorable. I was like, I got to Does the it. name Mr. Mistopheles mean anything to you? Mean. Okay. Well, that's where I think we're going to end this uh, this play British one. Uh, this has been very fun. There will be more Dev and Dave episodes to come. I've weathered together separate, uh, but we're going to leave it here for now. This is uh, Bruce. Do, do either of you have anything you want to say to uh, parting partners? Yeah. I got it. By the way, I got to come up with a name for uh, Mil Talkie audience. So if you have any suggestions for that, I'm also looking. My, the, the maybe two or three people that listen to So I, I just want to say that, that, I have a couple statistics I left off, but I'm not going to bring them up now. <laughs> but I will. Dave, one of these days, I'm going to have he just you on. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a full-on history one. Uh, one of these days. I don't know who the third you guest will be. Should, oh no, I'm going to find a third. I don't know who the third yeah, guest will David be. David could really educate your audience. Big I don't care. Like I don't you care. Be a great there might be episodes that people, if if I have listeners whatsoever, might listen to this and go. Oh, it's a history one. Fuck that. I don't care. It's my podcast. No, I love history. You love history. We are really doing occasional history podcasts, and you will be repeat guests on here. I want to have you, me, and Adam on one because there's a couple things. Oh, Adam, you, me, and Adam are doing one because there's certain. Why don't you do it at our house? We can, Adam could do it from Detroit. We can do all that stuff. Well, well actually, That's when they true. do come here, we will do that. That's fine. I actually want to do one secretly. I do want to do one with uh, Ollie and Poppy, too, when they're like, well, I think it'd be so funny. Oh, Maybe five-minute segments or whatever, that but I think Ali and Poppy doing one of these podcasts oh, would be hilarious. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, that was Dave and Deb. This was the first ever Holt episode. Uh, thank you for listening. And I got to have, have an outro phrase. What should I say when I'm, when I'm signing off? You got to figure that out. You're better at that. Dave. All Harvey. Good day. No, 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 no,
good day. And maybe you that go, was my last that, that was day. my last interview. Yeah, but you can't do that as, that as a reporter. Right. No, that was it's got to come naturally. Yeah, that was my last interview as a reporter. Come it was to Paul Harvey. generation and my generation we're going to discuss what you think is wrong with my generation what i think is wrong with your generation what i think is wrong with my generation what you think is wrong with your generation the differences we'll see where the conversation goes i mean we've had this conversation a million times in the past or at least me and mom have but yeah um so this is just recording it for fun and again if this goes terribly i don't need to post you know, it this is the, but you know what you're doing here then and this is what when when parents get to a certain age and they're getting old and people know they're going to die or whatever, this is kind of a really good thing to well, have one, tapes and stuff one of your the, parents what's funny is when and I conversations because it's not pitch, pictures are nice, yeah. but it's conversations. And, you know, videotapes can do that, but to stand there with a camera and all this other stuff. My entire emphasis of this, I don't even think you realize the impact that you've had on my life. And a lot of it, it's funny with uh, Rush Limbaugh's years I listened to Rush Limbaugh with you doing Windows and then before that was Loveline was my show of choice which I don't even think you know what that is I've listened to talk radio my entire life all podcasts are as talk radio I love talk radio I know you Dave loves talk radio and it's ironic that you were at Entercom I know we should have this company turn it on it's recording right now oh, that's okay. the beauty of this but this I, is what I always oh, do I, right. I always do a warm up where we just talk no. for a couple minutes but, but Entercom think about that if you loved radio so much and the thing is without Entercom you would not have had any sales background hmm? the sales background because you had the shitty you know it's like make the cold calls go, you know having to do all well, that that's stuff. why I started it's doing the, jingles was to make it fun but it was the hardest part of sales you can possibly do you you did the hardest I've said this multiple times you did the hardest I, Hated that job during it, and now since then I've realized that it probably was the because most important job. Because it taught you so much. It's the same but with, the, but the Convention and Visitors Bureau. You know what? It, for I, me, going out and even talking to B and Bs and having to try to get membership dollars, a hundred dollars or whatever to, con but I had to convince them that their hard-earned money would be good in a in a tourism guide. And you know, in Mineral Point. Do I think maybe the Madison Tourism Guide would have gotten you to Mineral Point? Maybe. But the point is, it was – sale. your sales were tangible. My sales were intangible because it's about a dream. And all my work at the foundation, it's all about a dream. Yeah, but a lot There's of the skill sets are the same. But that's and, the and, point. The and, skill set yes. is you do it at your level at Entercom. When you learn and have to do it at the hardest level, then anything else is easy. Well, that's it's, the, the it, it's just like Dave will understand this. To me, I look at now retroactively, didn't think of this during it, but I look now back at Entercom as almost like two-a-days, like the thing that you just to get yourself into fighting shape or whatever, and it just sucks ass and you like it. Taught, it broke my fear of being told no. I got so many rejections yeah, at Entercom that it's like at some point you're just like. I still hate it. I mean, I still, of course, everybody hates it. See, but at some, at some point you, you do care less about what it. What was your job that you really hated but 
I mean, the newspaper. Oh, I had a lot of jobs. I, I know you're you kidding. <laughs> well, Isn't I, that oh, most of your but, life, I'm not, but I'm not talking about the ones <laughs> like no, no. One I'm, that you think David, I'm not talking about the chicken fish. retroactive. But I'm saying the ones that before the fire department that really created character. Character. Working oil rigs. Yes, I can see. Was something that was. It was dirty. It could be monumentally boring. It could be tense. Dangerous as all hell. There were when the shit started flying around. Um, yeah, you really had to. You know, one of the first things I learned in the oil rig, they said, if the, if I say run, don't ask why, <laughs> just run, just run. And I saw a couple of circumstances where pipes come out of the hole and that kind of thing. And I mean, it was like no question. If you saw somebody run, you ran, kind of thing. This is actually kind of a, uh, we're just going to start with the generational thing. Welcome to Miltaki, everybody. My host, my name is Bruce City Benjamin, your host. This is kind of leading into a night. We're going to do the generational one first because uh, I feel like your generation is better. The idea of my generation being told, uh, run, don't ask questions. I feel like my generation would be like, why? Oh, why? Run? why? Of course. I know. That is not something that my generation would take easily. And sometimes it's like, to survive, idiot. Like, that's why. That's oh, And your generation understands that. Oh, much more. Much more. Much more. All right. I'm going to actually reset this and re-edit it, but uh, that'll actually be kind of a fun thing. All right. We can keep talking. Uh, I need about five minutes or so because it takes some levels to get audio. Okay. So, I think so one of the more interesting things I saw on Re- the Real quick, though. One of these days, I want to have both of you on, and we are just going to do, as Mom was talking about before, one of the biggest values of this is I love the recording to have this in posterity forever or whatever. I want to have a one that is just all of your fucking... I agree. Paramedic stories oh, and your outlast oh, stories and stuff. I want to have a recorded version of Do something. that, Ben. Like the, the highlight I one. wish you would do that. And for both of us, but for him specifically, yeah. I, I think that would be really... What you were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say one of the more interesting things I saw is when you're pulling the pipe out of the hole, when you're going to change the bit, and the pipes are all 30-foot sections, and you'd pull them out. You've had three of them. They're 100 feet long. Basically, ninety mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned early on is if the guy in the tower loses grip and drops the pipe, the pipe comes down, and then there's a recoil. It's the recoil that kills you. When you one, say recoil, you're saying like the vibration of the pipe. It hits, and then the pipe kind of arbitrarily and then shoots. it'll jump oh and you have no idea which way it's going to jump. come up and you got to get out of the way if it hits you it can kill you yeah. it's one of the dampest things i've ever seen no i mean when dad would talk about some of these stories and and how he'd have to grab it and i mean i'm afraid of heights well, i'm afraid of everything one, that can he you did. just quick everything this he is did, even part afraid. of the topic but can you just tell the one story about when you had to jump Oh, so I'm wearing bib overalls. We're, we're tearing down the rig. We'd finished, we capped off the thing and they're now going to get to production and everything. So you're tearing down the rig. So I'm on the floor of the rig and I'm wearing bib overalls and the, uh, 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 how do I say it? The cable came over with a hook on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to hook it onto, you know, whatever it was. And the cable swung over and I went to grab it. 
And the hook, which is the size of, easily the size of my hand, if, if you open it up, snagged my, uh, what do you call Overhauls. it? Overhauls. The, the overhaul on the, 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 the suspender the part suspender, or whatever. Yeah. And then it swung out. And what it did is it pulled, pulled, you. pulled me off the rig. I'm three stories up. And all of a sudden, it, it was just enough to put me over the edge. And I'm going, going over the edge. So I'm, I'm like. You know you're falling. Oh, I'm going over the edge. I have no choice. I can't even imagine that. And I look, it scares me to even think about those so, split second instinct. Things, no, but it, it, it scares me. So, to even so, so what I did is I looked at what am I going to do? And I jumped toward there was a engine down below. The engine is almost like a story up. I figured, well, I'd be better off landing on that. There. Just one of those split second. Best things. case scenario. Out Best of case. A bunch of bad ones. So, so, so you're you're out in space, you're falling, and you... Well, no, I have a choice because I'm on the edge. But when I, you say choice, you have like a second to make I this have choice. a... Many seconds. Yeah, this say, is this is not a well. Can I jump towards yeah. something? Your mind is just going. It's it's the so brain it's a survival. That just says so I survive. jump basically toward this engine, and I made it to the engine, which is like a two story. But fall. it's not hot or anything. No, it's just sitting there. Okay. So, but I figured, well, that's a. At least you had something to hold on. So it's, I it's landed, survivable. I landed on that thing with my feet, and the next thing I know, I'm flat on my back on the ground. And I don't remember anything, how I got there or anything. And everybody's running up to me. Now, I'm sure I got a concussion. But anyway, I'm laying there and they're all going, you okay? You know, all this stuff. And I'm, my head hurts, my back hurts and everything. Apparently, I landed on this thing and then flipped off of it because it's a greasy top. But and what I'm not understanding is, okay, so this hook took you by the the halter, the, the, the strap of your coveralls. And you're going through the air. Well, no, I'm just not understanding it just the physics. Hooked me of enough. It. What happened? It, it hooked me enough to throw oh, me off balance. Oh, but you weren't on the hook, so you. Oh, it was I, think, I think it's almost like it gave him enough uh, of a push that, like the momentum, he knew he was going over. There was no way he could but stop he himself. To, but he had enough a second presence of mind to, to, to have. Correct me if I'm wrong. You had a decision where you could maybe push off to. Direct. You were going over, but you could direct it a little. I bit. had a split second. The, the hook just, you know, grabbed me, and, and that's pulled, what got pulled, you. It's like if you were on the edge of a cliff and a giant gust of wind pushed you, and yeah. you had a second to be like, "I'm going to fall," but how do I want to fall? Yeah. So anyway, wow. I fell about thirty. Feet. God, that scares me. I know it's so scary to go. It's so scary. I fell about thirty. I wouldn't be here if you would have made the wrong choice. I fell about thirty feet. You know, I Jesus I Christ. obviously, you know, Kurt, 30 feet is a lot. a lot. Oh, yeah, it was a long way. Yeah. That's a long way, David. And the fact well, that consider, you landed on your feet on this engine. No, I, well, the, I landed on the feet on the. On and the, then you landed on your back. And then you were well, on your I back. don't know. I, but I how, woke up on but my But you could have been paralyzed from a fall. She could have died easily. Debbie, I had four fatalities on the ambulance off ladders, and they were six foot step ladders. And I fell 30 feet. It is stunning to me how you are, you know, with our travels and everything, your personality is when it is the adrenaline needs to get kicked in, 
You are at your best. You are, you should be with FEMA. You should be with, no, seriously. You should be with Christ. I should go to war. No, you, well, honestly. I'd you, be a soldier. You, well, you no, have a no, crisis no, no, no. mentality. He does. And when you aren't in crisis, David, when you're just sitting around retirement, yeah. whatever, you, there's a, there's such a split on, you're so good in the moment, but if there's never any crisis, it's just kind of like, okay. <laughs> I've, no, we've said this before. I have a bit of that too, where, you know, I, you I think I'm good at prodding. And without Dave is it, very good at reacting. Oh, his reactions are excellent. But when he has long stretches of, of boredom, it's actually when he's at his city. <laughs> I do the same. I do the exact same thing. I think I'm 